Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Frank Film Club, the club for lovers and makers of film. I'm Maisie Williams. I am an actor and producer. I'm Lowry Roberts, and I'm a filmmaker and producer. Hello, I'm Hannah Williams, and I am a casting director. And welcome to our club. Take one. Hello everyone, welcome back to Frank Film Club. This is the podcast for lovers and makers of film and we've got a great one today. We're going to be speaking about Coda, which you can go and watch on Apple TV that's been winning all the awards and halfway through our conversation today we are going to be joined by Troy Kotzer who stars in the film and has also been winning all the awards for that conversation, we have decided to start our YouTube channel so that you can watch the conversation in full. So if you search on YouTube for Frank Film Club with Maisie Williams, we'll also post it on our social media, which is at Frank Film Club. And later on for our conversation, we're joined by Troy and his interpreter, who is who you will hear on this episode. And as always, our episodes are fully transcribed so you can read through them afterwards or whenever you want. So, um, before we get to that, though, what have you girls been up to? Well, I'm in a new spot today. I'm up in London, Ooh. having a little London day, which is going well. I'm going to see my friend for some dinner tonight. So, yeah, doing well. Having a nice day. <laughs> I love the way your speaking is so broken. I was going to say, that whole sentence sounds like it could have been cut together by Frankie. It has. <laughs> From all the different episodes that we've done. She's not actually here. <laughs> She's not actually on this episode. We're just cutting her in. <laughs> what about you, Lowry? Um, I, I'm good. I've been, I've been working outside today, actually, because it's been really sunny. So I've been out in the garden with my laptop managing not just about managing to see the screen I'm I'm quite close to the house so the wi-fi is still excellent I always think that's such a good idea to go outside but like in in theory but in practice I can't see the screen and I get really annoyed and then I come back inside after like two minutes so just get a frown line yeah exactly migraine and then come back inside for a bit (laughs) yeah what about you Han um I'm good it's just gone really busy all of a sudden It's like a tornado up in here, but a really nice tornado full of actors. (laughs) Ah, yeah. One of those ones. Yes, very specific tornado. Um, (laughs) But it's good. It's really exciting. And we're working on some wicked projects. That's well exciting. Yeah. Love that. Um, But always got time to speak to you and um, definitely have time to speak about this one. I'm so interested to hear what you think. And I think this is a really special film for loads of reasons, but um, I have some questions also. So today we're talking about Coda, which has been doing incredibly well on the awards season circuit. 
and rightly so. The acting is incredible. The story is brilliant. Um, and I think it's a really well-constructed film. The film stars Amelia Jones, Troy Kotzer, Marley Matlin, Daniel Durant, and is a story about Ruby Rossi, who is a coder, which means she is the child of deaf adults. And it's about her pursuing her dream to be a singer. Um, the film has been sweeping up. They've uh, won Best Picture at the Oscars this year. Um, Troy Kotzer's won Best Supporting Actor at BAFTAs, Oscars, SAG Awards. Um, and like I said, he's joining us later, so we've got loads of questions for him. What do you girls think? I had like a lot of ideas about this film before I went into it, and I thought that it was going to be quite, like in terms of the aesthetic of it, like quite... I don't know, Disneyfied in a way. And I was kind of worried. But having watched it, it does definitely give those vibes. However, it's the sort of film that me maybe like five to ten years ago would have been completely obsessed with. Like, I think the character Ruby is someone that I would have like aspired to be like. Um, and I just think the story is like so lovely and it's like one of those ones that like had I been a teenager now you know how we do our Frank Film Club throwback movies like Save the Last Dance like this is like would have been my Save the Last Dance in a way Um, and so yeah it was a really heartwarming film like aesthetically not my bag of soup (laughs) but it's uh, it is beautiful and um, I'm so thrilled for all the recognition that it's got yeah it's such a lovely film and I feel like when sitting down to watch this film that was exactly what I needed it's like a very easy watch and I weirdly was expecting it to be the opposite to what you expected Maze. I thought it was going to be a lot more uh I guess aesthetically more like Manchester by the sea and like more moody so I was quite I was quite happily surprised actually when it, it was a happier story Uh, because I was well up for that Um, and agree if I had watched this a few years ago then this would have been like a throwback one as well yeah that's such a good point I think um, I was in your camp Lowry because it won best picture I think I just assumed that it would have a certain visual style that was indie gritty um, yeah like that Um, but it wasn't it felt a little bit um, it was very clean like the way that they shot it and I think also tonally it was um, very Disney that's why I think it's surprising that it's so that you know that it was Disneyfied well I mean Apple is still finding their style anyway and I guess their shows aren't really like gritty it's they're very like approachable like you think of like the morning show like their big one it's like very palatable it's like marketable it's like accessible but yeah it does it feels it feels Disney okay so why did you think it was going to be Disney then I just think the when it was advertised just the the photographs I think like the styling of like the costumes it just felt like like I don't know flannels and like caps it felt like quite stereotypical like fishing town but not like real life well I was I was just I was surprised with the with the tone was just so vastly different to what I was expecting it to be and then I was thinking about it afterwards and like we can get into all of this but like 
in order for um, a story which is um, inclusive in what it's doing, winning at the Oscars, why do I expect the winner of Best Picture to be a certain style? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I have a certain expectation for a, be- for a Best Picture to, to feel a certain way or look a certain way. And I think this was very different from that. And But I think that's also, that's actually quite a great thing that they have shocked us with that. We were just getting so used to knowing what they were going to choose because it's all the same. What I like about this is that like best picture at the Oscars, quite often that selection is like not really like palatable for like the majority of people. And like, yeah, it's not about like what did you know best at the box office or like what did the most people like see but I do kind of rate that this one best picture and it's like loads of people are going to watch it because it's just like you know it's for a lot of people um it's kind of maybe like how it should be okay so do you know anything about the origin of the film nope absolutely none this is a remake of a french film oh my gosh Yes, called La Famille Belière, which did quite well in France. But there was a bit of controversy around um, the the fact that the actors who were playing the family uh, were not deaf and it wasn't authentically cast. Um, But I just I just thought it was such a great original idea. And then this film was directed by Sean Hader and premiered at Sundance. And then it was bought by Apple TV for a record at the time of 25 million. My word. That's pretty mad. Obviously, chomping at the bit to talk about the casting. (laughs) Yeah. Really interesting that the French film came under a bit of fire for not casting authentically. And so glad that it's been remade and cast authentically. And we obviously did Sound of Metal last series, which... um, has Paul Racy in it, which is incredible. And I just did a little bit of um, a look at who, who, what else, like who else have we seen on our screens? And there, there is a lot more now, especially for deaf actors. Um, there's an actor called Lauren Ridloff in Eternals, massive Marvel film, Paul Racy in Sound of Metal, Millicent uh, Simmons in A Quiet Place, who is an incredible actress. And I just think Troy is a star it's like he is an incredible actor and what a shame that we're seeing him I mean it's fantastic that we're getting to see him now and that he's getting the notoriety he deserves but that he hasn't had a role before that has put him where he deserves to be because I think he should be up there with you know the well-known faces we know agree I'd say that that was my main thought for what I would have quite liked to have seen different in this film was for basically for him to be the main character or for him to at least be seen more in a bigger character in the story or or maybe it's just because I'm so excited to see him as a main character I'm sure he'll go on to a project where he's he's playing the lead surely what did you think of um Ruby Rossi I loved her character. I thought that she was a really incredible performer. I I read, well, I mean, you've probably got all the facts, but she spent like a long time learning ASL. Um, And I think that like you can really feel just like her passion, I think, when she's signing. Um, 
yeah, it's just like being able to riff as an actor is like a skill in itself. And then like when you're signing, like I'm sure there's like a lot of different ways to kind of say the same thing. And I think like you could really tell that she built up her vocabulary to a point where she could like really perform whilst not saying a word. And I thought that that was, yeah, really, really special. She put in a lot of work for this role, a lot. So she's English. No way. So she had to master the American um, accent, which she does perfectly. Guess who her dad is? You're not going to guess. But guess. I've, I've, I've just seen. Alad Jones. Alad Jones. As in like the singer. We're walking in the air. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on with Amelia. They saw over 100 girls. Um, The role is obviously like a lot of um, elements to it that need to be right. Sean didn't want an actor who was like 28 playing a 17 year old. She wanted to be a young person. The the voice needed to be like something special that, you know, you would pick her out of a crowd or pick her out of the the class, you know. Um, And then she had to sign um, and emote through sign, like you say in Maze. Um, And uh, she, she got the job. And nine months she spent learning ASL and learning about the deaf community. And she also had to learn how to work on the fishing boat. American accent. Oh my gosh. Fair play. I always have a question about this. Maybe you can shed some light on it, Maze. We've had actors on things that have to work with a dialect coach. So she did nine months. Like, was she being paid for that prep work? Like, how does it work? Um... Well, usually, no, you wouldn't be paid. You'd negotiate your fee for the whole thing, and that would be for everything. But sometimes if you're like a daily, then you get paid a certain fee for every time that you're in to rehearse and a certain fee for every time that you're in to shoot. And that's why it's really funny on set when they go, okay, like... um, we're not going to have you in tomorrow. We're going to do the scene today. And like half of the actors are like, no, do it tomorrow. So as they get two days pay and the other half of the actors are like, oh, good. We get to go home. Like, you know, so it, it really just depends what contract you're on. Um, yeah. <laughs> ah, OK. Well, um, something which was interesting about when they were filming this for, for Amelia was that obviously like when you're working on set, sometimes it's a little bit fluid with the script and you're going to have changes but because she 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 knew ASL but she wanted to make sure she really got it right so then she could emote through what she was doing and not just like be thinking about what she's doing with her hands um she found that quite difficult because she had to then relearn you know what what that was wow fair play big job what was your favourite part of the film? Because there was a moment in there that really stood out to me. So I wonder if it's the same for you guys. Okay, favourite moment was when the sound like drops at the end and they're trying to see how, if she's good by like looking at other people's reactions. And it's like such a heartwarming moment, but it's also really heartbreaking because you feel like they're never... Well, not never, but like they, they're just never going to experience it in the same way that we do. That doesn't mean that they can't still experience it in like, you know, a very fulfilling way. But that was like, 
yeah, I did shed a little tear at that point. I got a little lump in my throat. Um, yeah. Yeah, same. I'd say that bit. All of the scenes with the whole family, I just completely loved and just wanted to spend all my time with them. And then the scene with Troy and Amelia when he puts his, uh, when he like feels the vibrations on her neck when she sings, that was very teary. So my favourite part is that when the sound drops off as well. And I, that that was for me, for sound and metal as well. When I when you get to experience what that sound is and just how different the world is when that sound is there was, um, yeah, it's it's horrible. And there was a full two minutes of, of silence, I think it was. So powerful, I think. Yeah, and it was at the perfect moment as well, I think. I agree. I think, like, that end section, like, those last 30 minutes, the different elements in there, I think, like, pulled it into being a really, really special film. I do think as well, like, speaking about, like, the style of the film, I think there's so many elements that feel like they could be from different films. Like, you were talking about um, the family scenes, like, how hilarious and dirty and, like, the chemistry that they've all got together is so amazing. I feel like that's an element. And then when she's in school or like when she goes and she sings happy birthday, I felt like I was watching high school musical or like a different thing. And there was quite a few like stereotypy things in the high school as well, which felt really different. Just like when they're at the quarry and they're both together, that's like, and they're jumping in the quarry and like the whole love like relationship, like that again feels like something kind of different. Um, Yeah. Oh, it was just so. But I think with within that, they still, as much as like the, these elements were all quite different, the pacing of it was still was really well done. You know, sometimes when like different scenes feel so different from each other, like this, and they've got like different sections. Sometimes you can go if you keep going back to one of them, you're like, oh god, not this one again. But it wasn't like that with any of them. Totally agree. It could feel quite separate, but even though it was, I mean, think about when you're a teenager, you do have completely different worlds. And the way that you feel and interpret those different like parts of your life does feel so separate. Oh, I love the bit when she's with her singing teacher, but the bit where he's getting her to like shout and scream. I thought that that whole section, as we were kind of saying, like felt very like high school musical up until that point. And then it felt like, yeah, just like every now and then touch these nerves. And it was like, yeah, I thought that was really special. We can speak a little bit about the accolades of the film. So we've spoken about Best Picture and I'm I'm really like happy to hear your thoughts on that. And it's really changed my idea on like what that should be and why should it be that way? If we're talking about diversity of stories, why can't we talk about diversity of styles as well? Um, I think that was just my own, my own preconception of like what that should look like. Um, so um, Troy won Best Sport and Actor of the BAFTAs, Oscars and SAG Awards. Um, this won Outstanding Achievement in Casting at the Arteos Awards, which is the CSA Awards. He was the first deaf actor to win an Oscar. And guess what? This is a mad fact. So Marley Matlin was the first deaf actress to win an Oscar, but she didn't win it for CODA. She, she won it in 1987 for a film called Ch- Children of Lesser God. And now they've come together in this film and they've got the chemistry that they do and he's won Best Supporting Actor and I just thought that's so incredible and like the 
the time that's passed between that. If you put a deaf actor on screen and give them a good role, a leading role that, you know, we want to see it. That's so cool. Was she, did she win Best Supporting Actress, was it? I think she won Best Actor, Actress, sorry, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to watch that. There was a lot of discussion around um, casting non-disabled actors in dis- disabled roles. I really don't think that that is going to be a thing that happens now. I, well, I was just going to ask, when was the French film made? Because I'm so shocked that that happened because I feel like, rightly so, here's so many conversations about how that, that is just not, that just can't be a thing anymore. Um, and I thought that it wasn't a thing anymore. So yeah, how old is that French film? So that came out in 2014. So it was eight years ago. Right. And if you think about things like um, The Danish Girl, that came out in 2015 and that wouldn't be done now. I was about to say that. Was that pre or... Yeah, is that pre or post The Danish Girl? Because I feel like that definitely... <laughs> yeah. That definitely changed a lot of things. Definitely. And that it was 2015. So we think that things are progressing and like we've all known all this stuff for a long time but actually it's like it is quite recent (laughs) and I think people always like to use the argument like oh but like you know if you're acting then like the point is that you're like becoming someone new but the point is is like there's no there's not opportunities for people who were like born deaf or like like are deaf there's not the same opportunities like the industry is just not inclusive like until like you know we go all the way and then we can start like experimenting and like you know you 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 have to give these opportunities to the people who 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 at least understand like you know understand the um the impact for so many reasons as well like look at the actors that have come out of this film and that we've been introduced to for the first time for so many people but also like think about people watching a film like this versus a film you know, that might have won Best Actor at the Oscars 10 years ago for portraying a disabled or a deaf actor and actually seeing yourself or somebody who has the same lived experience as you and not someone who's acting. How how um, amazing that must be. Like, I think that Eddie Redmayne is a really good actor, but the theory of everything, like, that year, I can't remember what the other performances are, but just doesn't feel right <laughs> in some way this is really special and I, I just I can't wait to see what Troy does next and I, I can't wait to see what like doors this opens for deaf actors in this industry I'm so excited I feel like it's a really exciting time to work in casting as well like a lot is changing and it's great Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now it's time for In, in the, the Club. Club. And now it's time for In the Club, and we're being joined by Troy Kotzer, who stars in Coda. We're so excited to speak with him. Just so you know, the full extended interview is going to be going onto our YouTube channel. So have a look at that. We are joined today by Troy and his interpreter, and that's the voice you will hear on the podcast. Um, and just a reminder that all these episodes are transcribed if you want to go back and read. Troy, we've just spent the last half an hour uh really gushing over the film to be honest with you and especially your performance so um thank you so much for doing this with us thank you so much for having me and thank you film club for having me join your conversation today i'm thrilled to be here we would love to start with how you came on to coda and what that process was like so i had an agent in the past who sent me some information about auditioning for a particular scene so i went to do the audition and when i read the script I noticed it was a fisherman. And in real life, I'm not a fisherman, but I was trying to envision what a fisherman would do. You know, so if I arrived at the audition, I wanted to look the part. So I actually stopped by a Goodwill, a thrift store, and I was looking for a type of fisherman's jacket. And I found a baseball cap with the word that said, base, like the fish, bass, like the fish. And so I had a beard, you know, about a three week beard. And so I wanted to play around a bit with, with this, this wardrobe that I picked up from the thrift store. So it was funny when I showed up, the casting director was sitting across from me and our director and our director was quite young. I didn't realize that that was Sean Hader. And so Sean Hader gave me some feedback and asked me to audition and perform the scene in a few different ways. And I was playing around with my clothing. So I was envisioning this scene would would happen in bed, you know, it's the scene where Frank argues with Jackie. And so they gave me a chair. So I was envisioning the chair was like a bed. So I was, I sat on the chair as if I was sitting on the bed and I was taking my shoes off as I was signing my lines. Like I was actually arguing with my wife. And so I wanted to feel as believable and realistic as possible. And so it's really important as an actor, of course, to be prepared. And Marley already knew my background. Marley Matlin, and she had come see me perform at Deaf West Theater on stage. And that was quite a big help that she personally recommended my name. So she checked on me after the audition. And then a year later, it was probably over a year, I finally was offered the role. And so I asked Marley what took so long. And she told me that behind the scenes, the producers were actually arguing because they wanted to cast an A-list hearing actor to play deaf. And so they actually had to take the film away from the studio and decided to produce it independently with Pathé and Vendôme, which were French independent studios. And really the accumulation of all of my experience on the theater stage and TV and film, you know, I still really felt like an outsider. And my question was, was Hollywood ready for a new face and a new deaf actor? And so I'm so grateful to Marley Matlin and Sean Hader for really making those demands for authentic casting. And that's what led me to where I am today. We, we've we just had a really big discussion about that and how um, it, it it blows our minds that we haven't seen you before. I just wanted to just quickly go back. Um, 
when you, how you got into acting and what your career looks like up until CODA? You know, when I was when I was a young kid. So remember back then in the 1970s and 80s, there really wasn't any access for deaf people. There was no closed captioning. There was no smartphones. There was no technology. There was no Zoom. I would have to follow the schedule and the TV guide to watch my favorite show, which was Tom and Jerry. And I would remember every single scene in the episode. And so on the school bus, I would sign the episode to the other deaf kids who were kindergarten through high school. And I'll never forget their eyes lighting up and their laughter. That was where I discovered that it really felt great to see an audience react to my performance. I realized quite soon that there wasn't so many deaf opportunities. And of course, Hollywood wasn't ready for deaf actors or deaf directors. And so being involved in the theater stage, it was a great zone for me to have friendly access. And so it was National Theater of the Deaf and Deaf West Theater and various deaf theater stages helped me develop my craft and grow as an actor. And we had so much collaboration of hearing and deaf cast members working together. You had the deaf actors and the hearing voice actors, and we had to sync up the dialogue. And I worked with so many talented people and the accumulation of all those experiences really helped me in the TV and film world as well. And given your experience working within the industry, like how did you create like an environment which was like accessible for everyone? That's an interesting question. Early on, you meet the actors and you work on the sign language translation before the first day of the shoot. It really depends on the character. Like Amelia Jones in CODA, for example, did not know sign language. So she had learned sign for almost a year. There was two other ASL masters who were deaf, Anne Tomasetti and Alexandra Wales. And they, being deaf, they were able to work with Amelia Jones on set, as well as with us deaf actors, because it's a deaf eye behind the camera watching the monitor to make sure the signs are clear and accurate. And sometimes the director might ask me to improv some lines, but of course, if our hearing director doesn't know sign language, I have a massive sense of relief knowing that there's deaf eyes behind the camera and they're helping out the script supervisor as well, making sure there's consistency and extra lines are added to the script and so on. So without deaf eyes on set, of course, I would have been extremely worried because would they understand my sign language? You know, do I, is the camera going to zoom in and actually cut out my signs? And that would happen quite a bit in the past because they will zoom in on and do a close-up on hearing actors, right? But they don't zoom in just on the lips and cut their face off, right? And so it was really important that we had that authenticity and that accuracy. And really the editing was beautiful in Coda because during post-production, we also had a deaf eye there with the editors making sure that the best takes were used and you weren't cutting in the middle of ASL dialogue. You need to have the deaf eye there while you're shooting because you cannot adjust sign language after the fact. You need to make sure you get it right when you're shooting. And with improvisation, I imagine quite often they want to have two cameras on the interaction so as they can cut between it and match up the same thing. And you wouldn't be able to cut between different hand movements because you'd be saying two completely different things Yeah, in the, in the same shot. Exactly. That's such a great point. So before we'd continue, so I would ask our director how many shots she planned to set up. And so it could be dangerous with multiple angles 
because it may not fit the editing. So if you're just doing one wide shot, of course, I'd have much more freedom to improv in that way. And that scene in the doctor's office in Coda with Frank, Jackie, and Ruby, I was able to just improvise quite a bit because we just had one wide shot. And so it's very important to be prepared before you arrive on set. We were speaking earlier about the amazing chemistry um, in the family in Coda. And we wondered if you had spent much time rehearsing as a family. How did you make that chemistry happen? I've known Marley and Daniel for quite a while because the deaf community is quite small. And so both of them being serious actors, we had the fortune of working together in the past. And so we got to know each other, we made friends. And with Coda, when we were both cast, we were familiar, very familiar with each other. So that was a big help in having that trust and that we had worked together in the past. When we arrived on set, we just really synced up because we had that mutual trust. Really, we had that rawness and with a mutual language, with sign language and deaf culture, we all communicate in the same language and we come from the same culture. So there was the warmth, like we felt at home with each other. And usually they tend to have one deaf role with an interpreter. But with this cast, we had an ensemble of three deaf folks. So it was great. We really hit it off. Well, that, that makes total sense now because, yeah, you and Marley in particular have such great chemistry. And it's also so interesting to hear that you improvised a lot, which actually leads on to something that I was wondering about with the script. So when you get the script, um, I'm guessing it's, it's written on the page. When you translate that to um, ASL, does much change from the dialogue? And how do you workshop that? That's a great question. So... In the script, of course, it was all written in English, but you would have italics in the script. So the italics would signify that the lines were to be delivered in ASL. And so if you had the italics and a slash, then that would mean the it was simultaneous communication. So the lines were spoken in English and signed at the same time. And so we had kind of three um, forms of communicating in our script. And so sometimes sign language can even surpass what is written in English because really we had to make our translation to really fit deaf culture and a deaf sense of humor. And so we are so used to translating English to ASL, especially us actors who are experienced. And so our director might say something to Marley and say, hey, Marley, improv. And so there was the scene in the recital where Marley says, to me, Jackie says to Frank, what do you want for dinner? And so I had to play along with her. And I said, how about spaghetti? And we just had these scenes that we really, we fed off each other. And so then they added the English to the script. So then in that case, the ASL was translated into English and then given to the script supervisor, put into the script. And so that's how it worked. I was just really interested in um, that Troy has a coded daughter and that you could really see how much he connected with Ruby, with Amelia in, in this story. And it felt like a lived experience. And I was just wondering if there was anything that wasn't in Coda, which is a really like integral or interesting or important part of having a Coda child. To be honest with you, when Amelia Jones, who of course played the Coda in our film, Really, she reminded me so much of my daughter in real life. And there were so many similarities. And I felt like my daughter was with me. Even the way that Amelia signed 
And in some ways she was shy or how her character struggled to uh, socialize with the hearing world. A lot of that my daughter went through. And so I've seen that CODAs sometimes are embarrassed on signing depending on their background and the background of their parents. Some parents aren't proud to teach their children sign language and sometimes CODAs are embarrassed to sign in public. Um, I've met some CODAs who can only finger spell and not actually signs. And I, I think there are some hearing folks who are just learning sign for the first time and they just have only finger spells to follow their parents' way of communication. Um, sometimes CODAs are so fluent in sign language that I think they are deaf themselves. And I find out they're hearing and their CODAs, they just are, have been so involved in the deaf community. It really depends on the individual. And so Amelia Jones, who played Ruby in our film, really, I believe, was a great mix of a lot of actual individual CODA stories that we used in our film. You can't really discuss it until you have the experience yourself, but you can also hear these stories from actual CODAs. And so I see what my daughter's going through now as a teenager, and there's so many different experiences and so many stories. Wonderful. Well, I guess we have a production company and we love to make films. Um, and we're always looking at ways that we can be more inclusive and just more diverse with the people that we cast on screen, but also just inclusive on our sets. And I think like, we, I'd love to ask what considerations need to be made when you are accommodating deaf uh, actors um, on a film set. Or even in the audition process as well, like just from that very beginning, like what is necessary for you to be able to do uh, your, your job? Just in general, from my personal experience, when I've arrived at an, on an audition, I would check with my agent and see if they provided an interpreter and make sure that they're reminded to have an interpreter. And so if they're not able to find an interpreter, I'm happy to, to help. Sometimes I bring along my personal interpreter. Of course, interpreters have to be paid for their time, but sometimes it, it can be awkward for the, if the producers just see any interpreter, they think, oh, we can just cast the interpreter instead of the deaf person. And that has actually happened in the past because they can sign, but they can also communicate with the director and the producer directly. They might say, hey, we can save time and money and just cast the interpreter. So it's extremely important that interpreters know the boundary and they know that they're there to serve the deaf person and bridge communication. And that's their job and their role. Um, and what I did with CODA was made sure I understood the lines and made sure that the translation really fit the meaning and the intent of the lines in the way they were written. And so I would always ask my agent to make sure, make sure they would provide an interpreter. And of course, you can always contact an organization called Respectability and they can help you as far as setting up your auditioning process and as well as production and post-production too, to be accessible for deaf folks or anyone with any disabilities. There's another thing that I wanted to ask. When you're receiving notes on set from a director, would you often change the dialogue that you're saying or the signs that you're doing? Or is it also like the emotion and the intent behind your actions? Um, like how, how do you ha handle that? <laughs> so first off, I would make sure that I understood the story and understood what Frank's goal was throughout the arc of his character. And sometimes when I read the script, which Sean wrote, I would make sure that I met her vision because if I was not meeting her vision, then I just wanted to make sure that I understood that clearly. 
And so one example was the, the scene, which of course was written from a hearing perspective. But when I saw it from a deaf perspective, I felt like it really didn't fit deaf culture. So I'd ask Sean if I could try something different. So there was the pickup truck scene, of course, when Frank and Ruby are sitting on the back of the flatbed pickup truck. And there was a line in there that said, thank you. And so really out there, so many people know the sign for thank you. So I wanted to behave in a way that would indicate that thanks. And so I kissed Ruby on her forehead. And so I felt like that was the connection. And that was the moment that the line, thank you, didn't really fit the scene. I wanted to really put in what would fit deaf culture and would have the similar intention of what was written in the script. So of course I would ask Sean what her vision was because I don't want to waste time. It can cost a lot of money to do even more takes. And we were a small budget independent film. So really beforehand we would discuss her vision. And so we did two takes on that pickup truck scene and that was it. And so I'm so happy that we captured the power of that scene. It's so good to hear that there was that space for the, that kind of collaboration because it's needed in, in all stories, really. I just wanted to say congratulations on the Oscar win, actually on all of the many, many wins that you've had. So well-deserved. Um, we wanted to ask, how, how has your career changed since the win? Does it feel like it has changed and what's, what's happening? Well, a lot has changed. I've received so many scripts we have several agencies we're considering collaborating with. And so really, I see my team motivated and, and, and supporting me as far as whether I'll be a director or producer or actor. And so I would love to work with several directors that I've always wanted to and I've always admired their work. And so I'm very excited about the whole thing. There are some scripts where really they envisioned having a hearing actor, but now they want to actually make it into a deaf actor. And so we're discussing how we can make these adjustments. And so I'm quite excited. So I am seeing quite a bit of change. That's so exciting to hear. I, I actually just wanted to throw in another question. Do you have a dream role that you would really like to play? Bottom line for me is that I don't want to play a victim. You know, typically the deaf role has traditionally been a victim or someone to have sympathy for. You know, there's so many great deaf historical figures in the past that many aren't aware of their history. Any of you know the name Dummy Hoy? So Dummy Hoy was the first deaf professional baseball player, and he played for Cleveland back in the 1940s and 50s. And at that time, when he was playing, they had to figure out how he would communicate with the umpire because they might say out or this or that, and they had a communication breakdown. So we actually taught them the, the hand signals for strike and ball and safe or out. And so that was created from Dummy Hoy. And it's still used today in professional baseball, but no one knows where that history came from. So I have so many deaf historical figures I would love to portray, and that's just one small example. Are you planning on di directing? Yes, I am. I'm just waiting for the right time and so I directed a low-budget film under SAG called No Ordinary Heroes, The Super Deffy. And the trailer's online, and you can see that. So anyway, that was my first experience directing a film. And so now it's out on the streamers. And I was quite excited about having that experience. It was a good step forward to me to go through that experience. Really, we only had two weeks of shooting, and we really had to get everything in. And so I feel proud and now I feel confident and ready for future directing 
opportunity. And I would love to direct and act like Clint Eastwood or Ben Affleck. And when they're both directing and acting on the same production, I'd be the first deaf person to be a director actor. So I'm just waiting for the right time. And so I need to slow down and have the process. I still have a bit more to learn about directing, of course, and I'm going to work on more sets and really work with more directors and really feel comfortable and ready and confident to direct my next project. We're so excited. We're so excited and we're so excited to talk to you because, um, you know, even what you've done with Coda, what an honor to speak to you, but we just know that you're going to go skyrocketing from here. So excited to see the future for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting with all of you and I'm sure that maybe you've learned something new about what it's, what it's like to be an actor who happens to be deaf and has had a journey like me. We, uh, we have learned so much and also our community have as well. And so we're really grateful for you to take the time. We're massive fans of your work um, and we're looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me in your film club. It's been really fun and stay safe out there. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Um, I feel uh, enlightened. So um, I want to ask you girls for your final thoughts. That was just incredible. I'm, I was so excited to meet Troy and he did not disappoint. I feel like, well, I did just keep on asking him extra questions um, <laughs> because uh, yeah, he's just really amazing and I really can't wait to see him in a in a lead role. But Coda, final thoughts in general. I feel I feel like I still feel the same as I said at the start of this of this conversation. It's it was a lovely film. I felt really fulfilled after it. And I feel like I've learned so much from watching the film, from having this conversation and from talking with Troy. And I'm so glad that we have chosen this film. Yeah, it was really, really amazing to be able to chat with Troy. Um and I found myself getting really flustered, like speaking, I guess, like when someone is like repeat, like, you know, translating what you're saying, you're all of a sudden really aware of every word that comes out of your mouth. Um, But he uh, was like very, very gracious. And um, yeah, it was really nice to chat with him. And I think that this film is really special. And I really, really want this to, you know, just kickstart a a change that's sort of slowly been happening but like I just I really want to see more films like this because I think that like non-verbal communication is so important in acting um and to see people like signing I think is like I just think it's it I connect with it a lot um and uh yeah as someone who like is of hearing yeah, it's just very special. And I'm, I feel really glad that we did this episode. Me too. I am just excited. I'm just so excited for different things to start coming out more and more and more and more notor- notoriety for it and more eyeballs on it and more people being represented and more exciting casting choices and new people coming on the screens and people feeling like truly seen. And um yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy that we watched this film. I just want Troy to have been the main character and to have not have been, <laughs> and to have, <laughs> that is my only bad thing to say about the film. <laughs> not that um, Amelia wasn't amazing, but I, but 
he he didn't need to be a secondary character. Well, I'm just so excited to hear that he is being approached for films that have been previously thought as as hearing or um you know non-disabled or like non-deaf roles because that's the whole thing about casting and I had a talk with the BFI um last or earlier in the year about the fact that the roles that deaf and disabled actors are going for and being put up for are as Troy was saying victim roles or roles which their their only characteristic is that they are deaf so the fact that he's being contacted now for roles that are um, written as not that previously is really exciting too. Yeah. And actually that is what this film did so well is that they they weren't victims. As much as like Troy and Marley weren't um, the main character, they were, still had so much character and they weren't victims. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Incredible film. Fabulous chat. Thank you, women of the world. And Troy. And Troy. This goes out to the women of the world and Troy. Plus Troy. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the episode. I certainly did. Next week, we're going to be talking about the 2014 film What We Do in the Shadows, which was directed by Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. It's a mockumentary about a group of vampires in Wellington, New Zealand, um, who live in a flat together or a house together and um, basically have to figure out how to live in the modern world. Uh, It's really silly and really good fun. And so you should go and watch it. It's available to watch on Amazon Prime in the UK. Um, So give it a watch and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast was presented by Wrapped. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.